Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, March 24th, 2015. Now, this will be an interesting program. From time to time, we deal with things that are truthy in the sense that not everything is said is wrong exactly, and so it's a little more difficult to find the issue. That'll be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down. Stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There's no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to stop, open up our Bibles, and look at the context and apply sound biblical exegesis. And oftentimes, all that's needed is context, context, context. And then there's other times that require you to step back a little bit and you know take a bigger view of what's going on and ask yourself, what's missing? Or I'm hearing things that are right, but they're not right. And that takes a little bit more work. Today's episode of Fighting for the Faith is kind of dedicated to that type of uh, message, and we're going to kind of build in complexity, if you would. We're going to start with a uh, Rick Warren um, sermon, a portion of it, and uh, Rick Warren's going to basically make a claim regarding resolving to do four things that Moses did, and then that will make your life better, and he's going to supposedly be exegeting Hebrews chapter 11, or a portion of it, at least those parts that have to deal with Moses. And some of the things he says, well, they're accurate, but how he's using these texts is not accurate. So we'll point out how that kind of works. And so, you know, even though somebody is supposedly exegeting, well, you got a problem there. Then we're going to uh, take a break. When we come back from the break, the uh, the Rick Warren segment will actually take some time. Uh, when we come back from the break, we have a Joyce Meyer and Beth Moore update together. <laughs> they uh, they did a uh, episode of Joyce Meyer's uh, television program, and they're talking about unity in the body of Christ. And they kind of chop it up into two segments. And, uh, you know, Scripture does talk about the importance of unity, but does it talk about it in the way they are talking about it is the way we'll take a look at that. And then we're going to um, head to Australia. You know, in fact, I think we're doing two Australian sermon reviews today. I'm not trying to pick on the Australians. My apologies if it appears that way. But uh, that Calvary Church, uh, Mr. McPherson, uh, he, uh, we're going to be reviewing a sermon of his where you are going to literally be able to agree with 
80, 90% of what he's saying. But then throughout, he says these little things that just sit there and go, mm, wait, what was that? Mm, I, wait, how? Huh? And then at the end, he makes a couple of statements to make you go, <laughs> what was that? And so uh, this is one of those things where today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, it's not going to be outrageously difficult. I mean, outrageous is, is in the sense of you're, you're not going to hear crazy things in the sense of people claiming to raise people from the dead or uh, Heidi Baker creeping you out with her demonic cackle or things like that. No, this is... You know, the people that are, we're going to be hearing from today, they're going to be saying things that, you know, well, you, you can kind of, sort of, they're, they're truthy. They're, you know, that's kind of the thing. It's truthy. But the thing is, is it, because it's truthy, there's you can tell there's something not quite right, and you can't quite figure out what the not right thing is. And so that's what we're going to be doing on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I recommend that you make yourself comfortable, and like I said, the the first segment is going to take a little bit of time. But so you know, as a result of that, we got to get right to it. That requires us to do this. don't know how I know, but I'm gonna find my purpose. I don't know where I'm gonna look, but I'm gonna find my purpose. Gotta find out, don't wanna wait, got to make sure that my life will be great. Gotta find my purpose before it's too late. All right, now we're going to get right to it. Uh, this is a, a Rick Warren sermon delivered a couple of years ago, talking about the four things that Moses resolved to do. And if you resolve to do these things, then you too will, you know, your, your life is just going to be better, way better. And so, you know, already you can kind of tell there's something wrong here. But, uh, you know, like I said, we're going to build up in, in complexity with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. And this would be the easiest of the uh, three things we're doing today. So here's uh, Rick Warren to explain this idea that Moses resolved to do four things. And that's why God chose him. Mm-hmm. Listen in. One of the greatest gifts that God has given you is the freedom to choose. It's what makes us different from animals. You have a free moral choice. Now the problem is, what is our greatest gift is also our greatest curse, because we make stupid choices a lot of times. We make dumb choices. Every choice I make is not a good one, and neither is yours. And, and, and so we often waste that power that God has given us. Now every year in January, people make new choices, which they call New Year's resolutions. Uh, The problem with New Year's resolutions is we usually make them about trivial issues, not the most important things in life, and then we try to accomplish them by willpower, and if you set some New Year's resolutions, you try to accomplish them by willpower, I give you to about the end of February, Uh, uh, because willpower doesn't last. It's good to get you started, but it doesn't last, and pretty soon you get tired, and you give up, and you stop that habit, that commitment, that new uh, thing you're trying to do. You need more than simply willpower. We're going to talk about that today. Now there in your outline, you notice the word to resolve, the verb resolve means to decide. It means to, um, to settle, to determine, to, to purpose. You have a purpose for your life. And the word resolution, like a New Year's resolution, means a firm determination to do something. What I want us to do this weekend is look at the four most important resolutions you can make in your life. 
These are life-shaping resolutions. What? Hmm. Four most important resolutions you can make in your life-shaping. I feel like I'm being sold something. What I'm going to share with you today, if you will make these four resolutions and depend on God to help you, your life will radically improve. Mm-hmm. Where does Scripture say that my life will radically improve if I apply four really important resolutions? You see, the the problem with this already is in the premise. And see, oftentimes, you know, you, you if you don't catch the error in the setup, then what happens is when the person opens up the scripture, then they're going to go ahead and, and open up the scripture, and the scriptures are going to look like it's fitting with the premise. This is a form of proof, proof texting, but he's reading more than one verse. So the problem here is in the premise. The setup is already wrong. Where in scripture does it say that if we apply four resolutions that our lives are going to become radically better? Not just this next year, but the rest of your life. The rest of your life will become the best of your life. These four resolutions will transform you. They will make your life so much better if you'll focus on these. And they come to us from the life of Moses. Now, now this is interesting. He's not going to spend time working through the book of Exodus to show us the life of Moses. Um, which, by the way, I wouldn't say that Moses had what I would consider like the kind of life I want to have. Um, you know, granted, you know, things started off kind of cushy for him, you know, growing up as the grandson of Pharaoh, um, you know, through the circumstances regarding his, you know, his birth and then being spared and, you know, and the, you know, being put in a basket and being, you know, fished out of the Nile by the daughter of Pharaoh. I mean, that that's all well and good, but... Um, Moses then murders an Egyptian, becomes a fugitive, leaves Egypt, and spends, what, 40-something years as a shepherd in Midian? Uh-huh. And and then God appears to him, you know, with the burning bush, and then he goes back to Egypt, you know, with this message from God, let my people go. And that things didn't turn out so great at the beginning of that. Um, took a little bit of time for even the people of Israel to, you know, kind of catch on to what was going on with these acts of judgment. And then finally, you know, Pharaoh lets people, the people go. And then, you know, and then Pharaoh's army changes their mind and Pharaoh goes after the children of Israel. God has to rescue them through the Red Sea, which is a fascinating miracle. And no sooner did they get to the other side of the Red Sea, you know, they're in Arabia there. And well, um, You know, the people grumble and, you know, they're constantly, you know, challenging Moses and complaining against God. And he just did not seem to have what I would consider, you know, by a 21st century American suburban type of uh, an ideal, you know, just like the best life. You, you know what I'm saying? And, and then, you know, and then to make matters worse, he didn't even make it into the promised land, you know. So, hmm. Okay. Now, Moses is uh, the greatest man in the Bible, or at least the greatest man in the Old Testament. Moses is the guy who led the Jews after 400 years of slavery to freedom. He challenged the greatest nation in the world at that time, Egypt and Pharaoh, and set 
a million people free. Moses is the guy that God gave the Ten Commandments to. Moses is the guy who wrote the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Why did God use this guy in such an amazing way? Okay, so there's the question. Why did God use Moses? What, what's the answer? God is the one who chose Moses. Well, let's see what uh, Rick Warren's answer to this is. Because Moses made four resolutions. He made four choices that altered his destiny. You see? Hmm. So the reason why God chose Moses is because Moses made four decisions that altered his destiny. In other words, the reason why God chose Moses is because of Moses. Yikes, we've got a problem here. And see, like I said, with this sermon, the problem is in the setup. How everything is established in this sermon, you know, creates the problem. We continue. These are the things that change your life. What happens to you in life is not nearly as important as the choices you make. We make our choices and then our choices make us. Your character is the sum total of your choices. So while you don't control all the circumstances in your life, you do control your choices. And these are far more important than circumstances. Now in Hebrews chapter 11, if you have a Bible, you might want to open there. All of the verses are on your outline. We have about five verses on the life of Moses that explains the choices he made. The first verse is about the choices parents made when he was a baby. And then the uh, next four verses are about the choices that Moses made. And if you will make these same choices, you will benefit dramatically for the rest of your life. Okay, so notice we're going to go into Hebrews 11. And if you're familiar with Hebrews 11, it is the great hall of faith passage. Let's take a look at it and we'll put some context on it right from the beginning to, uh, you know, to establish what's going on here. And so we can then see what Rick Warren is doing in this text. Already, again, the problem is in the setup. Why was the reason why God chose Moses? Because Moses made four important resolutions. Let's see if the text actually says that. Hebrews 11.1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, or you can even say the certainty of things not seen. For by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. By faith, yeah, by the way, the reason why it takes faith is because none of us were there at the creation. God has revealed how the creation took place, and we believe God by faith. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith he died. Uh, Even though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, 
constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he commended or condemned, sorry, condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All of these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which figuratively speaking he did receive him back. By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So 22 verses so far, and what do you think the theme here is? By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. All of these people are trusting in God and have confidence in God. Now we get to verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not might not touch them. By faith the people of, uh, of Israel crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, they were drowned. You see, uh, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And then we kind of get to, you know, the the part at the end, okay? This is a a rather important thing. And what more shall I say, verse 32? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, some were tortured, refusing to accept release 
so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they were ab- went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Now he kind of got the whole gist of this passage. Now notice when I got to the part about Moses, um, notice it, it emphasized that Moses did the things he did by what? By faith. Okay. But when I read the passage, did you catch the four resolutions that Moses made that if you make these resolutions, it'll make your life better? Hmm. Got a problem here. We continue. Now, you know the story of Moses. Pharaoh had decided that the Jews were getting too large in number, in population, in Egypt. So he made a decree that all the baby boys were to be murdered. Moses parents decided we're not going to do that we believe this is a special child we believe God has a plan and purpose for his life and so rather than murdering their baby boy they made a basket put him in the Nile River as a baby and shoved him out in the Nile nearby where Pharaoh's daughter was bathing Pharaoh's daughter sees the baby in the basket falls in love with this little baby, decides to take him home and adopt him as her son. So now this baby slave becomes the grandson of Pharaoh, but nobody doesn't, nobody knows except Pharaoh's daughter that he's actually a Jewish kid. Now the Bible says this here on the screen, Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. That's Pharaoh's command to kill all the baby boys. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose instead to be known, to, he chose instead to be mistreated along with the people of God, that's the slaves, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace, in other words, being a slave, for the sake of Christ as of greater value than all the the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward in in heaven. By faith, he left Egypt, leading the, the Jews out to freedom, not fearing the king's anger, Pharaoh's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Now in this passage there are Now notice he read the passage he didn't he didn't monkey with it he's not jumping around from uh translation to translation like he normally does uh he's not twisting the text he read it straight up but notice he read the word by faith by faith by faith those words were cut rolling off of Rick Warren's lips but he doesn't think that's the important part. Listen, keep listening. Four verbs. It says Moses by faith, Moses refused, Moses chose, Moses regarded, and Moses persevered. When you understand the meaning of these four verbs and their implication for your life today, thousands of years later, it'll change your life. Now let's look at these four life-shaping choices. 
resolutions that will flat out improve your life more than anything else. Now, just with that claim, these are four life-changing resolutions that will just change your life flat out if you'll just make these choices. Is that the point of Hebrews 11? Not at all. Not at all. So even though he read the text, notice it was out of context, and even though he didn't jump around from translation to translation, but was sticking with one translation, he's not really exegeting. Instead, he's just kind of playing on this idea. Well, you 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 got to make choices if you want your life to get better. Take a look at Moses. He made four choices because there's four verbs, and that, those are verbs right there in the text. He's right. There are four verbs that talk about the you know Moses and what he did. But the point of this passage in context is that Moses did all these things by faith. So we're already in you know in deep water here exegetically because. He's not rightly handling this text. Let's see what the importance of these four verbs are that are supposed to transform my life. If you'll do what Moses did. Here's the first resolution. Number one, I refuse to be defined by others. I refuse to be defined by others. What? I refuse to be defined by others? What? God did not make you to be what somebody else wants you to be. God didn't make you to be what your parents want you to be, what your girlfriend or boyfriend wants you to be, what your wife wants you to be. God didn't make you to be what your boss wants you to be. What on earth does this have to do with this text? Nothing. What your peers want you to be, God made you to be you. And if you're going to become all that you're going to be and what we're going to talk about the next six weeks... You're going to have to deal with this one. I refuse to be defined by others. Now, this is the first issue Moses had to deal with. Verse 24, Hebrews 11. You have to say, I'm going to resolve that I will refuse to be defined by other people. And I'm not going to let other people's approval or disapproval shape my life. I'm going to live for an audience of one. This is what Moses did. And your first life-shaping resolution is to say this, I resolve that no more will I let other people press me into their mold. I'm going to be what God wants me to be. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. And I'm going to fulfill the plan that God has for my life, not somebody else's plan for my life. Um, yeah, that's not what this text is talking about. And the important thing is, is that Moses did the things he did by faith. The Bible says this, Jeremiah 29 on the screen. Uh, I, uh, no, he's going he's gonna to misquote Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster. Plans to give you a future and a hope. Now, friends, that is real success. Real success, not phony, fake, artificial success. Real success in life is being exactly what you were created to be and nothing more than that. Um, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven has nothing to do with being who God created you to be, uh, talking about in the sense of the purpose-driven life kind of thing. So notice, Rick Warren, he's technically looking like he's exegeting, but he's not because he's not paying attention to the context and even the flow of what's being revealed in Hebrews 11. He's extracted out several verses, and he's rightly pointed out there's four verbs there. 
But now he's saying, you know, if you apply these resolutions that Moses applied to his life, then your life is just going to become super important and great, and you're you're gonna it's going to make things really good for you. And that means, you know, be, being who you are and not who other people want you to be. That has nothing to do with this text. What's the next one, Rick? The second resolution that you need to make in life to be all that God wants you to be, a life-shaping choice is this. I choose short-term pain for long-term gain. Oh, what? I choose short-term pain for long-term gain. Now, anybody who's ever played a sports knows this one. You've got to put out the effort. You've got to practice. You've got to work hard. You've got to put out some sweat in order to play in the championship game. You just don't walk out and win the championship. So notice what Rick is doing here. He's not reading this text through the gospel, which is what faith requires, is the gospel. Because it's faith in promises. It's faith in the promises of the forgiveness of sins, that God exists, that He's that you're declared righteous by faith. That's what uh, uh, Hebrews 11 is all arguing for. Instead, he's running everything through the law. So he sees, by taking this text out of context, and uh, and monkeying it with the way he's doing it. He's running this through the filter of the law. These are the secret missing ingredients for the success of Moses' life. It's these four resolutions. And, oh, because Moses was the high watermark of the Old Testament. Well, hell, if you just apply these four resolutions that Moses applied, you, not, you never know. You might hit the, the, the Christian high watermark for the 21st century in, in your life. But that's running everything through the law, and he keeps ignoring the by faith, by faith, by faith. So now we've got an, another imperative. Uh, no pain, no gain. So get busy and you know make decisions not for you know that aren't easy but are hard, you know? No pain, no gain. You gotta put out to to, to get back. If you're gonna be good at anything, you've got to put out short term pain for long-term gain. That's not just true in sports. It's true in finances. It's true in relationships. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, this is what this passage... No, it's not. So he notice he's taken everything... Basically, this is a, a, a whole passage. It's all about faith and trust in God. And he sees it as, well, this is all application. you got to have the same resolutions that Moses had. The right thing is often the hard thing to do. Now, here's what happened with Moses. He made a choice. Verse 25, Moses chose, you might circle that, Moses chose to be mistreated. That's painful. Along with the people of God, as a slave, rather than to enjoy, in the palace of Pharaoh, the pleasures of sin... For a short time. Uh huh. Yeah. Let's fast forward here. What's resolution number three I need to make? Third thing Moses did. Third life shaping resolution. I choose God's values, not the world's. I choose God's values for my life, not the world's values. This is what Moses did. This is why God used him. Uh, see, this is what Moses did. This is why God used him. Ergo, if you do these things, then God will choose to use you too. I think you get the point. Everything's being run through the law. And although he's, it, it looks like he's giving the appearance of exegeting, 
he's not really correctly handling the true sense of that passage. He's he's actually ignoring what this entire passage is arguing for, and by doing what he's doing, he's actually arguing against what this passage is about, and basically saying that you know God will choose to use you based upon your obedience. It's all up to you. You've got to make the decision. Apply these resolutions, and then God will do this and that and the other thing. This is purpose, not by grace, apparently, but you know, get, getting your purpose and and achieving your purpose and and having your purpose go rightly well that's all by law yeah and that's not what hebrews 11 is about at all okay we are up on our first break if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you can do so my email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on facebook it's facebook.com forward slash pirate christian follow me on twitter my name there at Pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. We got a a Joyce Meyer, Beth Moore, Al at the same time update. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> presents Church Day Select. Siri, what is your analysis of the sermon Rick Warren preached this past Sunday? Let me think about that. Here you go. Rick Warren quoted 15 Bible verses out of context using 11 different translations and paraphrases. Even an iPhone utilizing artificial intelligence is smart enough to know that there is less than a 1 in 10,000 chance that Rick Warren was preaching the truth. Siri, can you explain your analysis of Rick Warren's sermon to somebody who is a fan of Star Wars? You have a greater chance of successfully navigating an asteroid field than you do of hearing Rick Warren accurately teach the scriptures. Have you ever prayed a sun-stand-still prayer? Why would I do something as silly as that? The story of the sun standing still in Joshua chapter 10 is not about prayer. Looking in Joshua chapter 10 to learn how to pray is like asking your Macintosh to teach you how to use Windows 7. What do you think of Joel Osteen's sermons? Is this a joke? No, this is not a joke. I'd really like to know what you think of Joel Osteen's sermons. Words like junk food, cotton candy, and cancer-causing artificial sweeteners come to mind.
Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to be able to spot when people are twisting God's word, even when it looks like they're teaching it, which, by the way, I think is a good thing. All right, just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world, and you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we truly cannot do what we're doing here without it. All right, moving along, just by way of letting you know what it is that your ears are about to experience, since we're, we've got Joyce Meyer and Beth Moore appearing together, I couldn't decide whose update music to play. So I decided to do something completely unorthodox and play both of them together. Yeah, here we go. on that was sorry sorry i just i didn't know what to do i freaked <laughs> so uh yeah what we're gonna <laughs> yeah that just <laughs> those things you you're thinking well i'll try it we'll see what happens and then after tr- after doing it i realized whoo yeah that uh that didn't work 
So what we're going to be listening to is we're going to be listening to two segments from a recently aired episode of Joyce Meyer's television program, Enjoying Everyday Life. And she's invited her friend Beth Moore uh, on to talk to her and have a conversation about unity in the body of Christ. But where they begin is a very important thing because there's two segments. The The second segment specifically deals with the body of Christ and unity within it. But the first segment sets the foundation, the premise, if you would. And uh, as a result of it, if you buy the premise, similar to Rick Warren, then you're going to uh, end up swallowing the hook with the bait on it because the first portion of it is the is the bait and it's hiding the hook. So here's Joyce Meyer to introduce Beth Moore, and uh, like I said, they're going to be having a conversation about unity, but it begins in a weird place. Here we go. Well, Beth, it's so good to have you here today. We've been working on this a while, haven't we? (laughs) This is certainly overdue, isn't it, Joyce? I'm looking at you and thinking how surreal this moment is. I am so honored to be sitting here with you. Well, I'm very happy to have you here. You're a great woman of God and helping a lot of people and... uh, I think today we're going to talk about something that is just, I believe, really, really, really important. That's unity and how we can get along better. I think sometimes when you throw the word unity... Now, when we talk about unity, if we're going to talk about biblical unity, the question is, what does the Bible reveal about who we should be united with? Should we be, be united with people who are claiming to have prophetic direct revelations from God, like Beth Moore and Joyce Meyer? Should we be having unity with people like Joyce Meyer, who says that we're little gods? Um, Should we have unity with people like Joyce Meyer, who teach the word of faith heresy, that your words create reality and things like that? Should we, as Christians, have unity with somebody like that? Well, I find it interesting that Beth Moore is there to talk about unity with somebody who we probably, as Christians, should have no unity with, but should be calling to repent and to be forgiven for her false doctrine, and um, and stop supporting her ministry financially so that it goes off the air, because what she's spreading in the name of Christ is false doctrine rather than biblical Christianity. So there's Beth Moore. It's all about unity, and Beth Moore has united with Joyce Meyer, which should tell you something about Beth Moore. We continue. Yeah, it's kind of like over everybody's head. You know, we need to have peace. Yes. I mean, we, yes, a little peace would go a long yeah, way. Yeah, a little peace would go yes. a long way. And I'm So a- we need to have peace. We need peace, and so this is the setup. We continue. Here a quick story, and then I want to get your thoughts. When I first started my ministry, uh, God dealt with me about several things. He said, if you'll do these things, then I can really bless you. Yes. And one of the things that God really put on my heart was you got to keep the strife out of your life. Mm. How come God didn't tell you to apply the four resolutions that Moses applied to his life? See, notice right I mean right here in this this program about Christian unity, Beth uh, Joyce Meyer, sorry, get, get her confused. Joyce Meyer is saying, "Oh, God said to me, do very spec- if I'm going to use you, you've got to get the strife out of your life." Hmm. We continue. Marriage out of your ministry. Yes. Work to keep the strife out of your life. And I've discovered that Jesus works in an atmosphere of peace, yes. not turmoil and anger. And so I've discovered that Jesus works in an atmosphere of peace, not whatever, right? Where did she discover that truth? Did she discover it in scripture? No. 
She discovered this from her life experiences and God speaking directly to her. But there is no biblical text that says Jesus only works in, in, you know, in atmospheres of peace. That's a, that's a completely different doctrine altogether than anything revealed in Scripture. What have you discovered along these lines in your walk with God? Yeah, what have you discovered in your walk? Tell me your theology based upon your experience, not what God's Word says, but your experience. And see, the thing is, is that this conversation, without me stopping and uh, pointing this out along the way, if you were to just listen to it cold, you'd go, I don't know, I, hmm, I, I don't know. Huh. You know, it sounds kind of truthy, but see, the thing is, it's not. Because this is a theology based on your experience, not the Word of God. Well, that journey has been so volatile for Keith and I because we brought so much strife into one home. We were both uh, in love with other people, committed to other people, probably on our way to the altar uh, (laughs) with other people when we met. And somehow that chemistry uh, came between the two of us and we became so infatuated with one another. But what we did not work through was that we could not have been more different had we tried. And that we were also bringing a ton of baggage into the same home. Honestly, Joyce, it was like I looked across my campus at college and thought, who on this campus is as messed up as me? And I found him, and we came together and brought that all under one roof. So we certainly— Now notice, this story—I mean, marriage is difficult, and anybody who's married or been in a long-term relationship knows the challenges and the strife and the difficulties and, you know, the, you know, the ups and downs uh, and upheavals uh, of, a, of a long-term relationship, like a marriage. So now, now they're talking, not only doing theology from their experience, but they're talking about theology from, well, experiences that many of us can sit there and go, yeah, I know exactly what she's talking about. I've had similar experiences. But this is not where we get our theology from. And remember, this is in the context of them wanting to talk about unity in the body of Christ. They're setting the table to have that discussion by doing this, basically talking about theology that they've learned through their life experiences, not from a biblical text. Lesson in strife. And it was the same thing where God just continued to press on us peace. There must be peace in this home, or there's not going to be an atmosphere that the Holy Spirit can fill right here in this domestic place under this roof. Well, there must be peace, or the Holy Spirit can't fill this atmosphere. Hmm. It's been very helpful to me, and I share this all the time, is a scripture that says you're to pursue peace. Yes. And uh, it's actually in a couple places in the Bible in the Amplified. Yeah, Psalm 34, 14. Um, but she's not exegeting this text. She's just making reference to it. Let me f- pull it up real quick. Psalm 34, verse 14 says this out of context. Turn away from evil people and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Yeah, uh-huh. So notice this is in the context of turning away from evil and doing good, seeking peace and pursuing it, not having unity with evil. We continue. Pursue peace, go after it. And I think a lot of times we just want to pray for peace. Yes. Instead of doing what we need to do to have peace. And I came to a point in my life where 
I mean, I had lived in turmoil as long as I could remember because I grew up in turmoil yes. and brought that into my marriage. Now, my husband is extremely peaceful. I mean, he's peaceful to the point of being annoying sometimes. He's so peaceful. <laughs> but it's like, can't you just throw one good fit just to yes. let me know that I'm not the only person in the world that does this? But I had to learn that I had to change a lot of things in my approach to life if I wanted to have peace. We always want people to change and life to change, but usually we have to change. Maybe what are some of the things that God showed you personally that you needed to do? You know, I wanted to be a peacekeeper. I mean, I just keep the peace, keep the peace. But the irony was, as the scripture says, there was no peace to keep. <laughs> and you know where we might have um, something that fits together and complements um, one another, Joyce? I did not have an outward kind of strife in my um, in my personality type. I was more inward with it. I would be in turmoil inside my heart. My husband would be more out with what he felt and out with what he thought. And so pulling this together, one of the things he really taught me to do in a safe place was be able to speak up when something was just in crisis within me because I didn't want anybody to know. So I was trying to keep a peace that wasn't even there. Man, I and didn't have any trouble speaking up. <laughs> I really, really did. And, and my parents would tell me that it was even true when I was a child. Hmm. That I would keep everything to myself and wanted everything to be okay, everybody to like me, everybody to get along. And the fact is, we weren't getting along. So to find a safe place, to know that part of peace is sitting down and being able to reason together, to talk it out mm -hmm. and to talk about your differences. To me, if you had a difference, that meant you did not have peace. That's not true. Yeah. That's not true. We come together in our differences and there we find a peace that only he can bring and a harmony that only he can bring. And that was, I guess, the biggest lesson. Honestly, we're talking about something today, Joyce, that could not have been bigger for Keith and I because we just tangled over and over again. And I've said so many times, we Moors feel passionately about everything. And so we bring <laughs> that into the same household. And it was quite a challenge. But God has brought us through so much yeah. and taught us that same um, lesson that that is not going to be an atmosphere that he can work in if we're going to constantly be in some kind of turmoil. All right. So there, you, the, the recurring theme as you listen to that was them saying the Holy Spirit cannot work in an atmosphere where there is turmoil. Well, both Joyce Meyer and Beth Moore have come under fire for their Bible twisting, uh, their claims of receiving direct revelation, and uh, Joyce Meyer is no, uh, uh, let's just say, uh, green. Uh, she's not green when it comes to controversy because, I mean, right out of the chute, she, when, you know, her teaching ministry has been flavored by and totally influenced by the Word of Faith heresy, including the doctrine that we're little gods. And so, you know, now they've got to, you know, in a way, kind of shore up the people in their audience to make sure that they're not, you know, losing confidence in Beth Moore and Joyce Meyer. So, and so the recurring theme is the Holy Spirit can't work in an atmosphere where there's turmoil. We learn this for, through our lives and what God has revealed to us directly. And now what implications does this have regarding Christian unity and criticizing and critiquing the theology of both of these people. Well, let's go back to uh, Joyce Meyer and Beth Moore as they discuss this topic specifically. Welcome back. I'm talking with Bible teacher Beth Moore about the importance of unity. Well, Beth, we had a good start in the first half of the program talking about how to get along in our families and 
with our children, and particularly in marriages. But I'd like to take it in a little different direction now and talk about something that I think is a great, tremendous need in the world today. And that is how we can have more unity across the board in the body of Christ. I mean, even unity within a church, because I've been involved in several churches that were full of strife just within that one church. But then even across the board, so many different little beliefs about different things that divide us, and it's just not God's will, and it's shutting down the power of what God wants to do. Okay, so you catch that. You know, all of this talk about doctrine, it's dividing us, and thereby it's creating a situation where there's strife in the body of Christ, and you know what that's doing? It's shutting down what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Okay, now let me bring a biblical text in to bear here. This is one I refer to often. You can find this in Titus chapter 1. And Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to Titus. Now, remember, all Scripture is God-breathed. This is a God-breathed portion of Scripture. God the Holy Spirit is the one speaking here, not just the Apostle Paul. And uh, this is one of the pastoral uh, epistles. Here's what it says. Uh, Paul writes to Titus, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Now notice, this text makes it clear that pastors are to be men. Husband of but one wife, he must be above reproach. This is what the Holy Spirit says. This will come into play in a second. Okay? He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain. Uh, but he must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Notice, God the Holy Spirit makes it clear when somebody is teaching what is contrary to sound doctrine, that they are to be rebuked. Mm -hmm. Let me continue. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This, is, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Uh-huh. So this is what God the Holy Spirit says to do. Does this sound like it could potentially create an atmosphere of strife? An atmosphere of disunity? Of course. Because Scripture makes it clear we're not to be united with those who teach a fault, who teach false doctrine. Instead, we're to rebuke them. Even the Apostle Paul goes on in, uh, in uh, Galatians to give the sharpest rebuke of all to those who teach a false gospel. Paul, writing to the churches in Galatia, writes, he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. 
As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The word there for accursed in the ESV is anathema. It means to be damned. Huh. Sounds like the Apostle Paul created atmospheres of strife. Should we uh, come to the conclusion then that God the Holy Spirit wasn't working in this uh, epistle to the Galatians? And the reason I put it out there is because what Joyce Meyer and Beth Moore did is set up a false doctrine based upon a theology of their experience that basically comes to this conclusion. You know, the, this doctrine teaches that God the Holy Spirit cannot work in an atmosphere of strife. And now they're calling, we need to have unity in the body of Christ. You need to stop critiquing Joyce Meyer and Beth Moore. Hmm, we continue. Yes, but Scripture makes it clear we cannot be united with those teaching false doctrine. We have to rebuke them. Hmm, weird. All of this is based upon a theology from their own experience. Reason in the body of Christ that this is not the will of God. Yeah, it's it, it's really unbelievable. I was thinking, and I th- I thought this was a really good thought. I've been thinking about this a lot and thinking about teaching a little more. And you know, it just grieves me that people have so many opinions about things they don't even know anything about. You know, it's like people can have an opinion about me or you, and yet they don't know me at all. They've never asked me a question. They've heard something. Yeah, well, that's one of the reasons why I play what you say in context, Joyce, so that uh, when we we don't have to have a conversation with you, you say what you mean and mean what you say, and we just kind of take it at face value and then examine what the statements you're making in regards to what God's Word says and compare it to what God's Word says in context. It's not like, you know, that uh, the critiques we do here at Fighting for the Faith are not based in truth or based on anything you've said. In fact, I take great pains to make sure that we play you in context so that people can rightly hear what you believe, what you teach, and what you emphasize in your teachings to see if it actually squares with what God's Word says. Weird, huh? It is totally uninformed, and then they'll pass that from person to person. But I, I was thinking about my relationship with God, and I thought, you know, I seriously doubt that God agrees with me about everything. <laughs> but, yet, but yet we have a great relationship. Yes. And so yes. if, if you can just take that. Yeah, I seriously doubt God agrees with every, everything I say, but we, we, we have a great relationship, so it's okay for me to teach false doctrine. Again, this is a theology based upon personal experience. And say, my goodness, how far off am I from being exactly the way God would like me to be, and yet he loves us unconditionally? Yeah, you know, it's like, and I think just to talk about it openly, you come from one kind of background, I come from another. You've been very involved and still are in the Baptist church, and I could have very easily been a Baptist. My aunt was Baptist. I went to many Baptist church services I just happened to marry a man that was a Lutheran, and so I was involved in the Lutheran church for a long time. And if you would ask me today what I am— She's not a Lutheran anymore. You know, I'm not going to tell you any certain denomination because, to be honest, I just love Jesus, and I love the Word, and, you know, I I believe all of it. And I could not sit here right now and tell you that I even know if you and I agree about every little fine point of our doctrines, but I can say— that I agree with your spirit, I agree with your heart. Beth, do you agree that we're little gods? That's what Joyce Meyer teaches. 
Uh, do you agree that uh, that our words create reality? Uh, that's what she says. She teaches the word of faith heresy. Do you believe the word of faith heresy, Beth Moore, and that it doesn't matter? I mean, she said, I, we, I'm sure we don't agree on all these little fine points of doctrine. You know, doctrine, schmoctrine, unity is the important thing. But, you know, my I agree with the spirit in you. Is this what God's word teaches regarding unity? And the funny thing is, is that, you know, if you're not going to base unity on what Scripture says, you're going to listen to this and say, yeah, th- what these people are saying sounds reasonable. But it's not biblical at all. I agree with, excuse me. I agree with everything that you're teaching and doing in the body of Christ. And it just hurts me that people have to argue and and hurt the heart of God over things that really just don't make any sense. Yeah, so arguing hurts the uh, heart of God, yet God, the Holy Spirit, tells the Apostle Paul to rebuke those who teach false doctrine. Hmm. And that's what both of these ladies have been doing, teaching false doctrine in the body of Christ. Huh. And then then, so here's the tears. And again, this sounds so reasonable. It just sounds so truthy. But the problem is it's not based upon what the Bible teaches regarding what is Christian unity and how Christians cannot be united when it comes to those who are teaching false doctrine, false Christ, false gospel, and things of that nature. So, you know, so these two powerhouses came together uh, in a, in a basically a plea for that, there to be just, just, just stop quibbling over doctrine. <laughs> and, and this hurts the heart of God because God, the Holy Spirit, cannot work in an atmosphere of strife, they say. And yet that very claim that they made is, in fact, false doctrine. Strange, isn't it? All right. We are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're heading back to Australia. We're going to be in Australia two days this week. Do a sermon review on a sermon that there's a lot right with it. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. We're going to take a look at the ecclesiastical model employed by much of American evangelicalism today, especially as put forward by the seeker-driven movement. Chris Rosebro talking about his presentation at this summer's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. We're going to take a look at where this idea of a vision-casting leader comes from, what its main tenets are, and we're going to compare that so-called ecclesiastical office to the biblical office of pastor to see if the two are actually synonymous and interchangeable or if this concept of a vision-casting leader actually turns a pastor into a false prophet. 
you can meet and hear Chris Rosebro making the case against vision casting leaders in the church June 19th and 20th at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference in Collinsville, Illinois. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. The Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. You are going to find so much of this sermon you can agree with. It's not crazy. It's not off the wall. Except there's just these little things that occur in it, especially toward the end, that make you go, what? Yeah. So this is going to be an interesting sermon review. It still doesn't get the good uh, sermon sound from us, but... uh, Let's do this right. Hey, ho! The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Calvary Church in Queensland, Australia. Uh, Pastor James McPherson presiding. The name of the sermon we'll be listening to is If I Could Ask God One Question. And like I've been telling you since the beginning of the program, there's this sermon, you're not going to find yourself disagreeing with a lot of it. But yet there's something to it that makes it so that you can't say, yeah, that's the truth. Instead, you can only say, hmm, that's very truthy. Yeah, it's very truthish. <laughs> so, yeah, let's uh, go ahead and uh, back off on the music. And without any further ado, here is James McPherson and his sermon entitled, If I Can Ask God One Question. Here we go. To all of our other campuses, for those uh, joining us from Cairns and in Yapoon, in Emerald and on the Sunshine Coast, as we continue our Sunday night series If I could ask God one question, you would have heard people say, when I get to heaven, the first thing I'm going to ask God is, and uh, we spoke a couple of weeks ago about the question, why? Or more particularly, why me when things go wrong? You ever want to ask God, why me? Why did you let that happen to me? I think we've all wondered about that. Uh, Last week, Uh, we asked the question, how could a loving God allow people to go to hell? I mean, what's with that? And one of the things I love about the Christian faith, in fact, it makes the Christian faith unique in all the world, is that God doesn't resist our questions. He doesn't punish us for asking questions. You know, there are some religions on the face of the planet today where to ask a question of God is to put your life in danger. But when you read the Bible, you find some of the heroes of the Christian faith had lots of questions that they asked God. And in fact, God not only encouraged their questions, but God was only too willing to discuss with people and to help them better understand his plan and his purpose. Now, see, see, already we're kind of... Hmm. See, I can think of some questions that got people in in serious trouble with God. You know, for instance, I think of the questions asked by the children of Israel while they were in the wilderness grumbling against God. 
Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? <laughs> you don't think, yeah, yeah that, that that question got them in just a lot of trouble. So with and so this is one of those things you listen to this and you go, okay, that sounds truthy, but can you give me an example? And see, this is where we got a problem here, is that uh, if we're not exegeting a biblical text then it's possible to make truthy statements about God that don't actually bubble up from a text in particular. So this sounds sort of right, but not exactly. I mean, even Job, when he, um, you know, asked God questions, it, it it didn't really go so good. The, 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 the answers he got were pretty forceful from God. So, okay, that's kind of statement number one that's kind of truthy, but not really accurate, and I would need to see a biblical text. And so tonight I want to ask the question, how is it that the Christian faith can be true and all the others wrong? I mean, Now, I can think of a simple way to answer this. We go to a biblical text where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, then what we're doing is we're working with a text, and we're looking at a statement that Jesus has made. Or you can take a look at the other passage. You know, you know, for there has been, you know, for there is no other name given in heaven and earth by which men must be saved, talking about Jesus. Passages like that, and now we're going, okay, this is what God, the answer to the question is simple. This is what God has revealed. And when we make the claim that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God, that Jesus is the only way of salvation, we're saying what God has revealed, and God has revealed that there's only one way to be saved, and that's through Christ. You see, when you do something like that, when you answer the question with a biblical text that explicitly teaches this, then God is speaking. But when you don't answer the question from a biblical text, but really kind of from your own theology, which will might have a mix of Scripture and a few other things, then, it, then the answer becomes less than what God's Word says. It becomes truthy. Yeah, let's, we continue. I mean, doesn't that sound a little politically incorrect? I want to read for you before we get started from the passage of 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, a series of scriptures that in this day and age, 21st century Western culture, seem incredibly politically incorrect. Listen to what the Bible says. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. But this you will know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. They are of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, here's the bit that you'll like. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. 
He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifest toward us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, I find this to be a fascinating text for him to be using to answer the question because this text doesn't actually specifically talk about the exclusivity of faith in Christ for salvation. It talks about there being false Christ, false prophets, and those of the Antichrist, but that's not quite the same as the exclusive claims of Jesus where he says, no one can come to the Father except through me. So we've got a problem here as far as the text that he's chosen to answer the question, and it makes me scratch my head and wonder why didn't he actually go to the obvious text that deal with the exclusivity of, of Christ's claims regarding salvation. You know, one of the greatest objections that people today have concerning the Christian faith, in fact, not just concerning Christianity, but all religions, is their claims of exclusivity. In other words, what right do you have to claim that your religion is true? How can you say that your religion is right and all the others are wrong? Well, Jesus claimed to be God and actually proved that fact by raising himself from the grave on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. How's that? The idea that we might say Christianity is true and the only way to God is through Jesus, that idea has become incredibly offensive. If you were to ask people today, what's the greatest threat to world peace? Well, I guess the answer today would be very different to, say, 50 years ago. Uh, The author, Timothy Keller, rightly points out that if you were to ask people 50 years ago, what's the greatest threat to world peace? They would probably have said political ideology. 50 years ago, communism was threatening to dominate the globe. And so the biggest threat to world peace was probably a political ideology called communism. But if we were to ask people today... What's the greatest threat to world peace? I don't think most people would say politics. I think most people would say religion. Religion is the biggest problem today because it divides people. It causes strife. It leads to violence. And I think every single person, whether you're in Cairns or on the Sunshine Coast or here in Townsville, we would all agree. Does... Somebody who is an Orthodox Christian, who is a penitent believer in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and believes that there is salvation found in no other name than in Jesus Christ, are they in danger of being violent to their neighbors? You see, I say this because I know what's coming at the end of this. But see, we, we again, he asked the question, he picked a weird verse to answer the question from, and now he's talking about the threat that exists to the world, and we've got these sweeping ideas regarding religion in general, which I think is a very dangerous thing to do because Christianity is qualitatively different. Orthodox Christianity is qualitatively different than, um, than Islam. 
Yeah, wow. We've got a problem here. The biggest threat to safety, to harmony, and to peace today is actually religion. Here's why. If you tell people they have the truth and that if they perform that truth, they alone will be approved by God, how many of you know that is a recipe for people feeling superior? Yeah, that could happen. If you've got the truth and if you perform that truth, then you alone will be approved by God. That's a recipe for certain people, those people starting to feel superior to everybody else. And when you feel superior to everybody else, you start to separate yourself from those who are not like you. And, as you- and yet Christianity, those who hold the historic Orthodox Christian faith, understand that the Great Commission is go and make disciples of all nations. So excluding you know, ourselves um, you know, and pulling out of the world is not an option if you understand what Jesus said. I'm just putting this out here because... There's, it's something's truthy about what he's saying here, but it's, it's not quite right. You put space between you who have the truth and those who do not. There, there's now room for a lot of misunderstanding. We start to assume the worst of other people. We start to stereotype other people. We begin to alienate and eventually even oppress other people. After all, they deserve to be oppressed because they don't know the truth like we know the truth. And you don't need to re- really Christians. Again, where where are the historically orthodox Christians who believe that it is their duty to oppress people? This is not what Christ tells us to do. Yeah, man. Yeah. Read too far into today's newspapers to find that is exactly what's causing havoc around the world today. And so the world is rightly saying, what are we going to do about this? Religion is causing pandemonium in the world. We've got to fix it. And so the world has come up with two solutions, neither of which are working. Here's the first solution the world has come up with. That is to hope that as we become more technologically advanced, that religion will just disappear remember John Lennon saying imagine there's no religion and intellectuals in western nations imagined that as we become more sophisticated more intelligent as education levels rise and technology increases we will eventually evolve beyond our need for God Western intellectuals sort of regarded God as a crutch that we kind of needed back in those days. But, but now we're pretty sophisticated and we don't need God anymore. And so their great hope was that eventually religion would just disappear because men wouldn't need God anymore. Nobody believes that these days. John Lennon imagining no religion was really just a symptom of his smoking a lot of drugs. Because when you look at the world today, education levels are rising. People are coming out of poverty. Technology is increasing exponentially. And what's happening to religion? Religion is exploding across the planet. In the last 100 years, South Korea has gone from less than 1% Christian to well over half the nation professing believers in Christ. 
In Africa, in the last 100 years, that continent has gone from less than 1% Christian to well over 50% Christian. And the same is happening in China. Back in the 1940s, the communists uh, deported all the Western missionaries out of China to try... Now, I want to point something sloppy out in what he's doing here. And I know it's subtle, and, and this takes a little bit of discernment. He says religion is exploding, and now he's citing countries where Christianity has really grown rapidly, equating Christianity with religion in the sense that he's talking about it, but the sense he's talking about religion earlier in the statements was pejoratively in a way that basically says that religion's the problem because it, it's prone to violence and oppression. Hmm. Is Christianity prone to violence and oppression true historic Orthodox Christianity? Not that I've seen. ...to finish religion off, but all that did was make religion increase all the more because when the Western missionaries left, the Christian faith then became very indigenous and the locals grabbed it and it exploded all the more. And so this first way of trying to bring peace in the world, hoping religion disappears, is clearly not working and is not going to happen. There's a second idea the world has come up with to try to solve the problem of religion. And and that is, if religion's not going to disappear, well, that's okay. You can have your religion. We're just going to insist you keep it private. We're not opposed to religion, and we don't mind if, if you have some religious views, as long as you just sort of keep it to yourself. And one of the reasons they say that we ought to keep it to ourselves is that, well, all religions are basically the same. They're all equally true, and if all religions are equally true, then you don't need to try to convert someone to your religion because their religion is just as true as yours, and therefore, because they're all equally true, you can just keep it to yourself. You know, uh, the claim that all religions are equally true is as much a faith claim as the religions that they're talking about. When someone says to me, well, all religions are basically true, I always say to them, how do you know that that is true? At which point, most people use the illustration of three blind men and an elephant. Have you ever heard that illustration? Many of you will have heard it. They tell the story of three blind men who were stumbling along in the darkness and they all bumped into an elephant. One man bumped into the trunk, and so holding it and feeling it, he said, ah, an elephant, it's, it's sort of long and, and thin and flexible. Another blind man bumped into the leg. He said, no, that's not what an elephant is like. It's, it's thick and strong and stiff. The third man said, I don't understand what you're talking about. An elephant is not like either of those things, for he had bumped into the side of the elephant. He said, it's enormously tall and very, very flat. And they began to argue about what an elephant was like. The person who shares this illustration will go on to say, we know they were all right and they were all wrong. You see, each blind man had a part of the elephant, but not the whole. And so they could see part of reality, but they couldn't see the whole. And that's just like religion today. Every religion's got a part of the truth, just not the whole of the truth. But there's a problem with this illustration. It sounds brilliant. Here's the problem. 
The only way you could know that none of the blind men have a grip of the whole elephant is if you can see the whole elephant. In fact, the only way you can tell the story of the blind men is if you are the one who is able to see. And so what? And he's right about that. But at this point, you know, again, this is a very truthy sermon. Um, I'm having a little bit of a difficulty tracking with him. Number one, the question is easily answered from like Acts chapter four, for there is no other name given under heaven and earth by which men must be saved, talking about Jesus Christ there. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that's just straight up the easiest way to go about this. And then he's supposedly working through First John chapter 4, um, and, and now we're getting a lot of philosophy in here, and, you know, because that's what this is. And he's debunking, you know, philosophical ideas that the world might have about solving the problem of religion. And it, I hate to say it, it just, it sounds to me like he's buying the premise of the world's view that, you know, orthodoxy and the, the exclusive claims really do tend to turn people into oppressors who, you know, who are violent towards people who do not believe the same thing. And yet Christianity so clearly teaches against that. So it's, it's kind of weird because I think you have to challenge the claim of what the world is saying, and they're lumping all religions into one camp, and, uh, and not all religions are the same. We continue. Sounds very humble. He's actually incredibly arrogant. When you say no one can see the whole truth, you're claiming to have the take on the whole truth. When you say no one has the right to convert anyone to their religion, you're trying to convert us to your point of view. Which is true. And so this idea that all religions are basically the same and they're all equally true just doesn't stack up. But yet people persist in saying, well, we're not against religion, but we just insist you, you keep it to yourself because religion just results in arguments. So have your religious faith, but leave it at home. And then when we come to talk about how to order society and what our city should look like, let's talk about it without bringing religion into it. You know, it's actually impossible to leave your religion at home. The only people who think you can leave your religion at home are the people who don't understand what religion actually is. Think about it. Religion is not a weekly service that you attend. That's not religion. This is what religion is. Religion is a set of answers to the big questions of life. That's what religion is. Um, okay, um kind of a philosophical definition of religion and again that's truth e religion isn't a service or a temple uh ritual religion is a set of answers to the big questions of life for instance why are we here what's right and what's wrong and how do you know the difference what's the problem with humanity And what's the answer? What should our priorities be? Now, everyone has to start to answer those questions. Otherwise, you can't function. But all of them are faith assumptions. What's the purpose of life? You can't test that in a lab. 
You can't know for certain. You've got to make some assumptions. What's right or wrong or what should our priorities be? You can't test them and verify them objectively. They're they're assumptions. And we bring our religious assumptions, our, our answers to the big questions, all of us, into everything we talk about. Let me give you an illustration that's very current. Let's talk about gay marriage for a moment. Just to illustrate the point that when you come to a topic like that, you bring your deeply held beliefs about life. For instance, your opinion on gay marriage will depend on your deepest beliefs concerning marriage. If you think marriage is primarily about the happiness of the individuals involved... And so marriage is every person's right to to be happy. If that's how you view marriage, then then gay marriage for you is not a problem at all. In fact, of course you would have gay marriage because marriage is about individuals having happiness and and fulfillment and, and feeling that they're happy and fulfilled. And we don't want to deny that to anybody. On the other hand, Uh, Other people would believe that marriage is actually not first and foremost about individual fulfillment, but it's about creating an environment where you can raise children in safety and and health. And so they would say, no, no, I I don't actually agree with gay marriage because they have a different set of primary beliefs. And then you would get into another discussion about what's best for children. And again, you're invoking your most deeply held Beliefs. Here's- but what about the belief that God created a male and female? Maybe he'll get to that. Here's what I'm trying to say. Not whether gay marriage is right or wrong, but simply that you can't even discuss it without referencing your own deeply held beliefs. Okay, what are your deeply held beliefs on it? And so the idea that we should relieve our religion at home And then when we're out discussing how to order society, we shouldn't refer to religion. It's to misunderstand what religion is. Religion is our most deeply held assumptions about the big issues of life. Uh, Yeah, I guess from a philosophical point of view, sure. Yeah, I guess you could define it that way. But how is this answering the question about the exclusive claims of Christianity that there is salvation in no other person than Jesus Christ and that Christianity is true, all the other religions are false? And so those who say, well, you shouldn't bring religion into things, this is what they're really saying. My modern enlightened assumptions ought to be privileged over your religious traditional assumptions. Because everybody has a set of exclusive beliefs. So the question is this. If everyone has deeply held exclusive beliefs, here's the question. Which set of exclusive beliefs can produce the most loving, most inclusive, most harmonious, most peaceful community? Um, what? <laughs> So which exclusive set of beliefs can create the most inclusivity and peace and harmony? That's going to be the basis by which we determine which claim is exclusive truth claim is true? Huh? Okay, we continue. It's not a matter of trying to get rid of exclusive beliefs. That's impossible. We all have them. So the question then 
is in the whole world today, which set of exclusive beliefs actually create the most peace and the most harmonious relationships? And here's what I want to come to tonight. You know, the very things that are exclusive to Christianity are the very things that enable us to be the most inclusive people on the planet. Define inclusive. Again, see, he's, there's certain things he's saying that, yeah, they're true. But what he's saying about Christianity rings kind of truthy, not true at this point. There's, it's like the bell is ringing, a, making a sound, but the bell sounds like it's a different bell. Let me say it again. It's the things about Christianity that are exclusive, that allow us to be the most inclusive people. On the planet Now, it's kind of popular today for even Christian people to say, well, why don't we just focus on what we've got in common? And the truth is that the Christian faith has a lot in common with other faiths. In fact, all faiths have quite a number of things in common. And that's a good thing, but it's actually not our commonalities, but it's our difference as Christians that enables us to become agents of peace and goodwill. In the community. Let me- Agents of peace and goodwill in the community. What is that? I mean, I understand that we're ambassadors of the kingdom of God, and we've been given the ministry of reconciliation to declare to the world that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them, because God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might be the righteousness of God. I understand that, because that's what the text says, but this thing... Sounds similar but different. It's truthy, but I can't say it's the truth. Let me tell you three things that are exclusive and unique to the Christian faith that actually make us the most inclusive people on the planet. Here they are. The person of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus, and the plan of Jesus. Those three things, the person of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus, and the plan of Jesus, those three distinctives of Christianity, different to every other religion, actually make us the most inclusive, peace-loving, harmonious community builders that the world could ever know. (laughs) Oh boy, (laughs) this feels like Rick Warren's sermon, you know, the four resolutions that... uh... Moses made to make, yeah, this, it's kind of starting to take that feel to it. But again, some of the things he's saying, and in fact, most of the things he's saying are accurate. They're truth-ish, truthy. Hmm. Let me talk about those. Firstly, when the Bible talks about the person of Jesus, it makes claims about the person of Jesus that are unique and different from every other religion. The scripture we read at the beginning of tonight, 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, listen to what it says. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. It's an interesting phrase, come in the flesh. Notice it doesn't say everyone who believes that Jesus was born in the flesh. That would be probably a more uh, you know, normal way to say it. But the Bible doesn't say we ought to believe that Jesus was born in the flesh, but that he came in the flesh. It's implying 
that before he was born, he was somewhere else. It's implying what is stated explicitly elsewhere, that Jesus didn't begin at his birth in Bethlehem. He is different and unique to every other man who has ever lived in that we all began when we were born, but Jesus' birth was not his beginning. He was alive and active before he was born because Jesus is, in fact, God. Now, this is true, but there's something going on in the context of John's epistle that everybody needs to know. When John, the apostle, writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Why is he writing this? The answer is actually historically simple. Because already by the time of the Apostle John, the earliest proponents of the Gnostic heresy had already infiltrated the church. They were influenced by Plato's philosophy and believed that matter is evil, and therefore the Christ could not have come in the flesh because that is unthinkable in their philosophy, in their worldview. And so the Gnostic heresy denied that the Messiah has come in the flesh, and uh, they would basically say that Jesus only appeared to be in, you know, made of flesh, but he really wasn't. And in fact, he didn't even leave any footprints. So John here is writing against the Gnostic heresy. And although Pastor McPherson is correct that that what he's saying implies that Christ existed prior to his incarnation, the rub here is that the Gnostics were denying the incarnation. Um, so although he's what he said is true that Jesus is God, he's not totally correctly handling this text in the way he's presenting it. And in fact, I would even say this is a weird text for him to be answering the question regarding whether or not it is unloving and weird, you know, to claim that Jesus is the only way. Here's the second thing that is exclusive and unique, different to every other religion about Christianity. Not just the person of Jesus, he's God, but also the purpose of Jesus. The Bible says, we just read it, that we've got to believe that Jesus came in the flesh. Why that phrase? It doesn't just say he became human, but it says he came in the flesh. You know, when you start to study other religions, all other religions view the flesh as bad. The material world as a problem that we need to escape if you're part of an... Correct, and this is what the Gnostics were teaching, although they were in the church claiming to be Christians. Eastern religion, they tend to regard the material world as an illusion that we've somehow got to rise above. And so salvation is found by escaping the illusion of the material world and the flesh. In the Western world, we, we don't think that the material is an illusion. We know it's real, but it's bad. And so we need to get really good to try to overcome all the badness in the world or, or embark on spiritual experiences. But Christianity is unique in that it says that God came and was born in the flesh. And then it says that when Jesus rose from the dead, 
He rose from the dead in the flesh. And it says that Jesus is going to make the world the way it should be and there will be a new heaven and a new earth and everything bad is going to be put right. In other words, Jesus' purpose is not to help us escape the flesh, but rather to fix it. Sickness, poverty, war, heartache. Jesus' purpose is to fix all of those things and no other. No, actually, see, that's the wrong verb. Jesus isn't going to, quote unquote, fix it. He's going to kill it and raise it again. The heaven, heavens and earth are even going to pass away. And there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. God's going to regenerate the universe, not fix it. Oh, boy. Again, truthy, very truthy. The religion holds out such a purpose. Here's a third thing that's unique and exclusive about Christianity. The plan of Jesus is, is exclusive and unique to the Christian faith. All other religions say you've got to perform. You've got to love God. You've got to love your neighbor. And if God sees you loving him and loving your neighbor, well, then he will accept you. That's what every other religion teaches, except Christianity. You perform, you love God, you love your neighbor, and then if you do it sufficiently, God will accept you is not Christianity. Listen to what the Bible says. We read it before. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. So here's God's plan as explained in the Christian gospel. And this is different to every other religion. The Christian gospel says God's plan was to sacrifice himself for people who aren't loving him, aren't loving their neighbor, and aren't doing good. This is amazing. No other religion presents a God who comes to sacrifice himself for people who aren't doing Good things. Now, this is most certainly true. So, I mean, he's got that, like, straight up right, okay? So Jesus is not mainly a teacher come to instruct us in how to do better, but instead he's a savior doing for us what we could never have done for ourselves. He's living the life we should have lived, dying the death that we should have died, and he's doing all of that so that non-loving, non-performing people could be saved. True. Now, this is the verse that you will all love. Listen to it. Verse 7 and 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another. And some of you say, yes, that's what we should do. We should just love everybody. Why can't we just love everybody? Well, the Bible says that. Let us love one another for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love in this The love of God was manifest toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Now, the Bible does say we've just got to love everybody. But the warning in this scripture is that unless our religious impulses confess those three unique distinctives about Christianity, 
Our religious impulses will actually lead us to hate and even to oppress other people because it's the... No, 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 no. Let me read more of this text. In fact, let's go back to 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, and we're gonna, we're, we'll, we'll exegete it on the fly here. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So notice, us, them. Whoever is of God listens to us, the apostles, right? They are of the world. We are of God. Big difference. So then comes, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another." No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in this, or in us. So he's not handling this text. And notice what he said there. If we understand this, then we're going to overcome that religious impulse to oppress and be violent towards other people. Misusing this text badly. Let me back it up just a little bit because I want you to hear it again. And what I said earlier in the sermon that he seems to have bought into the presuppositions of you know the world out there that religion is the problem and it leads towards oppression. Yeah, biblical Christianity doesn't do that, but it's not for the reasons that he's saying. We continue. If you say, yes, that's what we should do. We should just love everybody. Why can't we just love everybody? Well, the Bible says that. Let us love One another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. In this, the love of God was manifest toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Now, the Bible does say, we've just got to love everybody but This text says love one another, talking about Christians loving Christians in fellowship, in love because of Christ. The warning in this scripture is that unless our religious impulses confess those three unique distinctives about Christianity, our religious impulses will actually lead us to hate and even to... (laughs) It's not what this text is saying at all. ...oppress 
other people because it's the three distinctives, the person, the purpose, and the plan of Jesus that enables us to love the world like no one else can love the world. That's why doctrine and what we really believe as Christians is important. You can't just say, well, we're just going to love. It's actually... And doctrine is important, but not for the reason you're saying. (sighs) Again, very truthy, truthy. This is very clumsy, though, really clumsy. The unique, distinctive, exclusive claims of Christianity, the person, the purpose, and the plan of God that enable us to love in a way that is going to bring inclusivity, harmony, and peace to the world. What does it mean that we're going to bring inclusivity, peace, and harmony to the world? Where are you getting this from? Let me explain, and then we're going to pray. Jesus says, we're not saved by our performance. Yes, that's true. Religion says, you're saved by your performance. If you love God enough and love your neighbor enough, then God will accept you because you are better than most. And how many of you know that's a slippery slope? I agree. As we explained earlier, you end up superior. You end up separating yourself from others. You end up alienating and even oppressing people. But you know, secular... (laughs) So you end up oppressing, alienating, and, and all kinds of things to people. Not necessarily. I mean, the Amish kind of think that way, and I don't see them out there oppressing people. You know know what I'm saying? Secularism isn't much better. People who claim no religious belief, I'm an agnostic or, or an atheist, I'm just a secularist, they're just as smug as people who claim that their religion has made them better. Uh, Atheists like to talk about how they are, in the words of Richard Dawkins, the brights. We're the enlightened ones. We're the smart ones. And so whether you're religious or secular, both groups look down on everybody else. Catch this. Christianity is the only faith that leads you to expect people who don't believe like you believe are probably better people than you. Let me explain why. Because the gospel says... I'm not saved because of what I've done. I'm saved because of what Jesus did. Yeah, again, now what he's doing here is he's doing theology via philosophy and logical syllogism without biblical passages. You you just can't do this. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's test what he just said. Well, if if I'm really a Christian, I'm going to view people who aren't even Christians and say that they, you know, they're probably morally better than I am. No, um, I would say we're all immoral and ungodly. That's, we're all at the same level. Ephesians 2.1, and you, you Ephesians, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So if I understand the gospel correctly and understand the doctrine of original sin as laid out in Ephesians chapter 2, and you can even add into it Romans chapter 3, 
Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 9, are, uh, What then, are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all, for we've all already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery, in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So a a right understanding of what God has revealed regarding the sinful nature that all humanity shares alike is I would never view an unbeliever as more moral than I am. I would see them as dead in trespasses and sins, which is what I was before God made me alive in Christ. See the difference? So, again, some of the stuff he says is true, but then he, it's, it, it's truthy. Then And now he's trying to do theology via logical syllogism rather than theology from passages that he's exegeting correctly. And this, you know, you don't do this. So he's make, he's saying some things that are right and then some statements that are just patently absurd. We continue. In fact, I can't get saved unless I admit I'm not better than anybody else. I need help. Every other faith system leads you to consider yourself better. But if you believe Jesus, you'll likely see others better than yourself. This is unique about Christianity, and it's all because of the plan of Jesus. The plan of Jesus is not, we love God, we love our neighbor, and then if he approves, then he will accept us. That's not the plan. The plan of Jesus is different to every other religion. The plan of Jesus is that he does for us what we could never have done. And it's only when I admit I was never doing the right thing, I need God's help that I can be saved. And so that causes me to be very, very humble. And I would not be surprised if there were people who don't believe what I believe, but they're actually much better people than I am. Because the plan of Jesus tells me I am saved, not because I'm better. I'm saved because I simply admitted most people are better than me. I'm not better than anybody. I just need a lot of help. That's not quite the same thing as saying I am a desperate sinner with no righteousness of my own. I need to be forgiven. God have mercy on me. That's not quite the same. The second thing is God's purpose, which helps to make us more inclusive. See, a faith system that says the world is evil means that all that matters is to get as many converts as possible and who cares about the problems in the world? And we're seeing that at the moment. Who gives a rip what we turn the world into? Let's just get people to convert to our religion. And if we set the whole world on fire, who cares? And which Christians are saying that? But if God's ultimate purpose is a transformed world... And it's not. His ultimate purpose is to kill the world and raise it from the dead. Uh Uh-huh. Heaven and earth will pass away. Then you and I are working to make it a good world. Uh, Bad eschatology here. Very bad. God speaks to his people in Jeremiah 29 as they are taken into slavery and captivity. 
You know what God says to them? He says, in captivity, work for the peace and the prosperity of the city where you are captives. And now you're quoting it out of context in a weird application here, as if somehow... What really what God, Christ is doing is he's gonna, he wants us to transform the world and make it paradise on earth. That's not what Jeremiah 29 is saying either. Because God has an interest in the world. God isn't helping us escape the world. God wants to fix the world. And so he says, even in captivity where no one believes like you believe, don't be a problem, be a solution. Why don't you... What? You work for the peace and the prosperity of that city. So even those who don't believe like you believe can have a better, more peaceful and prosperous life. And so it's the exclusive claim concerning God's plan that produces humility like no other religion. It's the exclusive uh, statements concerning God's purpose that causes me to serve wherever I go. And then finally... Yeah, what would cause me to serve wherever I go is that I know that God wills for me to love my neighbor. (laughs) This is what what I've been set free to do. It's the exclusive claim about Jesus as a person. The Bible makes it clear that Jesus is God. This is different. This is exclusive. No other religious leader is God, or even claims to be. But the Bible says Jesus is unique and distinct. He's not just unique, but he's unique amongst unique people. He is God. Now, I know what you're thinking. Surely that would make Christians proud and bigoted. Like, your religious founder is just a man, but our religious founder, he's God. You know... um, Understanding that Jesus is God doesn't make us proud at all. It actually changes us to be the most loving, inclusive peacemakers on the planet. Let me explain. Again, you keep using the word inclusive. What does that mean in the sense that you're using that word? You know, um, at the time that Jesus preached and Christianity began, uh, the Greeks and the Romans... They believed in lots of gods. In fact, you could have gods and you could have gods and and everyone could have their own gods and it sounded and looked really inclusive. Then the Christians came saying, no, we don't agree with that. It's not that everyone can have gods. There's only one God and his name is Jesus, which is very exclusive. So the Greeks and Romans, they had lots of gods. It was so inclusive. The Christians, they had one God, it's Jesus, which is very exclusive. But who built the most inclusive community. If you look at the ancient world, it was the Christians who believed that Jesus is the only God. It was the Christians who enabled rich and poor to fellowship together. It was the Christians who mixed races. Why? I'll tell you why. If Jesus is God, Jesus is ultimate reality. Well, okay, (laughs) It's that Jesus is the God of Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor. You could say black and white. Jesus is God of all. This is why the church is Catholic. It's universal. It's for all tribes of the earth. 
so I mean, I guess he's trying to define the term inclusive, and I agree <laughs> with what he's saying, but how he's getting there is so convoluted and not even in accord with what this text says. It just, it, again, it makes me feel like there's something else going on here. And just when you think you could see it, it disappears again. You know, but I don't like what this other thing is. It's, again, this is very truthy, very truthy. But can I say it's the truth? Not exactly. We continue. What does ultimate reality look like? If Jesus is God, he's the ultimate reality. What does ultimate reality look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like a man on a cross loving people who don't love him. It looks like a man on a cross forgiving people who are persecuting him. It looks like a man on a cross serving the very people who are opposing him. And the Christians, when they understood Jesus is God. Cue sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique used to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now descending on the audience, getting ready to do business with people, you know, because that's how he does business with synthesizers. We continue. This is reality could not be cruel to anybody. The exclusive plan of Jesus causes us to be the most humble people. The exclusive purpose of Jesus causes us to serve wherever we go and whoever we come into contact with. And the exclusive person of Jesus, a man who loved people who didn't love him, is the ultimate example of what our entire lives are supposed to be about so in conclusion you can choose moralistic religion where I'm going to do a lot of right things and I'm going to do better than you and God will love me because I do better than most people but that only produces self-righteousness which ends up a slippery slope toward violence (laughs) oh man um, yeah, I happened to uh, serve as a pastor in a part of the world that was n- marked by very staunch Norwegian pietism for a long time. Um, I don't seem to recall the history of this region, you know, being all about violence. Yes, again, there's some truthy things in here, and then there's stuff that just makes you go, what? On the other hand, you can reject all of the established religions and you can become a secularist where you don't subscribe to any belief in God because you're way smarter than that and you've evolved beyond those primitive ideas, which is a slippery slope that leads to violence. Or we can accept the gospel of Jesus Christ that creates in us a humility, a desire to serve, and a willingness to lay down our lives for everybody else, no matter who they are or what they believe. I think we all want that harmonious, peaceful spirit released in the world. Again, there's there's something else going on here 
can't quite put my finger on it. And it can be. Here's how. If you believe in the claims of Jesus Christ, then believe them even more than you did yesterday. The answer is not to let's look for what we all have in common. There's a lot of common beliefs amongst religions. But those common beliefs are not what transforms the human heart to become an agent of peace in the world. It's what's exclusive about Christianity. Jesus the person, Jesus' purpose, and Jesus' plan. Different to every other religion, but those three exclusive things actually cause us to become agents of peace. If you already believe it, then my encouragement to you tonight in whatever campus you're watching is believe it even more strongly than you ever did before because God knows the world needs people who hold strong to the truth of God's person, purpose, and plan. And if you've never opened your heart to the person of Jesus, if you've never understood the plan of Jesus is not for you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but rather for you to humbly Acknowledge, God, every single one of us has gone the wrong way. None of us are perfect. We've all made mistakes. We all need forgiveness. I'm the first one to put up my hand and say, I need forgiveness. Jesus, would you forgive me? Not because of anything I've done, but because of what you have done graciously for me. And the moment you pray that prayer, open your heart in that fashion. Not only does God come into your life and start to work with you, but you begin to become an agent for peace, for harmony, and for inclusiveness in the world. Let me pray. Heavenly done. I mean, I'm glad the gospel was there, and he rightly pointed out that salvation is by grace, not by works. That's true. And yet, there was something else going on in that sermon and you couldn't say amen to all of it much of it you can agree with and then there's this other stuff that just makes you go hmm what was that where huh yeah i think you get the point sometimes discernment isn't uh, always about um finding something that's way off Sometimes it's about finding something that's off just by a few degrees. And that this one was far enough off that I'd still, if I lived in Queensland, I would steer clear of uh, Pastor McPherson and uh, his Calvary churches. What did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ's vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.